0: It's hard to find the time to read all of the best articles on Bitcoin and the crypto economy. So let me read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the show. This is The Crypto Economy. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know, and we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, Sal Mayweather, the host of the uh, Agora podcast, um, and a fellow crypto-anarchist, or uh, anarcho-capitalist, I guess you could say, uh, but a supporter of BCH, has written an article explaining why the economics of Bitcoin maximalism is a flawed ideology, arguing from an Austrian economics point of view. So I'm going to read this article and then I'm going to go into why I think his reasoning is actually incorrect. So I think this should be a really fun episode, but let's go ahead and jump into Sal's article, The Economics of Bitcoin Maximalism. Bitcoin maximalism is a flawed doctrine, fallacious in numerous respects. First, if you'd prefer to hear these arguments in audio, check out this recent episode of ABNP, or A Boy Named Sue, and that's Sue spelled P-S-E-U, where at Mr. Sue and I discussed these same topics. Also, a qualifier. I'm not capable of making, defending, or refuting technical arguments. I will leave that aspect of the debate to others. My concerns with Bitcoin maximalism are entirely economic and can be divided into four areas. 1. Based on the criteria for saleability as laid out by the Austrian school, Bitcoin is not the most marketable digital commodity. 2. A lack of portability relative to other cryptocurrencies implies Bitcoin isn't as sound of a commodity. 3. Value storage is a secondary function of money and cannot satisfy the use-value requirement of the regression theorem. And four, Bitcoin maximalism lays waste to the Hayekian notion of competition as a discovery procedure. This final point was addressed in detail on episode 50 of The Agora, crypto Economics, and thus isn't elaborated on in great detail here. Salability In order to understand the concept of salability, consider the following example. Imagine a barter economy, where commodities are directly exchanged one for another. Alice is in possession of telescopes and wishes to trade one of them for some of the wheat that Bob has been growing on his farm. One telescope for one pound of wheat seems like a fair deal, so Bob accepts the offer. Next month, Alice returns with another telescope seeking a repeat of the same trade. What should Bob do? He already has a perfectly good telescope and certainly doesn't need two. Bob politely informs Alice that although he has no utility for a telescope, he could use a pair of shoes. Alice takes her wares to the local shoe shop and is politely denied by the cobbler, who himself is in need of a plow, not astronomical instruments. Somewhat frustrated, she makes her way to the blacksmith who accepts the offer, one telescope for one plow. The plow can in turn be traded for the shoes and the shoes in exchange for the wheat. While leaving Bob's grain farm, Alice notices that she isn't the only one present hoping to trade for wheat. In fact, she notices much more economic activity on Bob's wheat farm than in her telescope factory. This is because grain is a much more saleable or marketable commodity. Realizing everyone is willing to trade for wheat, Alice decides it'd be prudent to keep some additional wheat in reserve beyond the amount she can personally consume. This way, she can avoid the hassle of making a series of exchanges. Notice that the demand to hold a commodity in reserve is dependent upon its ability to function as a medium of exchange. In other words, if market participants are unwilling to use it as exchange media, there's no reason for Alice to hold it in reserves in the first place. Quote, the functions of money as a transmitter of value through time and space may be directly traced back to its function as a medium of exchange. End quote. Ludwig von Mises. A unified monetary system, given enough time, will tend to prefer one or at most a very small number of commodities as media of exchange. As Mises explained, quote, The greater the marketability of the goods first acquired in indirect exchange, the greater would be the prospect of being able to reach the ultimate objective without further maneuvering. Thus, there would be an inevitable tendency for the less marketable of the series of goods used as media of exchange to be one by one rejected until at last only a single commodity remained, which was universally employed as a medium of exchange. In a word, money. End quote. The question then becomes, what determines salability? Thankfully, Carl Menger gave us a very specific list of criteria to consider when evaluating the salability of commodities through space and also through time. While I recommend everyone read Menger's criteria for themselves here, link provided, for our purposes, I've selected only the aspects which I believe constrain Bitcoin's chances of becoming money. First, according to Menger, one aspect of spatial saleability is, quote, the cost of transport incurred in proportion to its value, end quote. If the cost of moving a digital commodity, aka transaction fee, is greater for coin A than it is for coin B, then in respect to this aspect of saleability, coin B has the advantage. Being notorious for high transaction fees, Bitcoin is, at best, lackluster in this regard. Remember, only the most saleable commodity can become money. Perhaps lightning will alleviate this. Perhaps not. In the meantime, there are undeniably a host of digital commodities which already function efficiently in this regard. Secondly, with respect to the temporal limits of saleability, of particular concern are, quote, the restrictions imposed politically and socially on their being transferred from one period of time to another." Thus, if states decide to prohibit or merely threaten to prohibit the possession of cryptocurrencies, they can seriously damage their marketability. Therefore, as states like India, China, and the US begin to crack down, we can expect to see a decrease in the salability of pseudonymous chains relative to anonymous ones. Finally, as we've seen, saleability is a dynamic and not a static concept. It's subject to change based on uncontrollable factors such as the behavior of third parties like states. There is no way for maximalists to know whether or not Bitcoin will satisfy market conditions if those conditions don't exist yet. For more on the Hayekian objections to Bitcoin maximalism, check out this episode of The Agora with Jeffrey Tucker. Soundness. On page five of the Bitcoin Standard, Sefidinamas says that the stock-to-flow ratio is a reliable indicator of a money's hardness. However, stock-to-flow is only a measure of the relative abundance or scarcity of a given commodity, and scarcity is but one element of soundness. By no means is it the only or exclusive component of sound money. Sound money is indeed scarce, but it's also homogeneous divisible, durable, and crucially, portable. In the context of sound money, portability refers to a commodity's value-to-weight ratio. Gold is more portable than iron, because if you wanted to purchase a car, you'd only need a pocket full of coins rather than a wagon full of iron. In other words, transporting gold requires less resources than transporting iron. Similarly, due to higher transaction fees, Transporting Bitcoin requires more resources than other cryptocurrencies. Therefore, not only is Bitcoin less saleable, but it's also less sound. Regression Theorem The maximalist claim that Bitcoin satisfies the use value requirement of regression theorem by being a store of value is particularly simple to refute. This is mainly due to the fact that Menger and Mises expressly attacked the claim that money's primary function could be its role as a store of value. As they explain in great detail, all functions of money are secondary to its ability to function as a medium of exchange. Recall from our previous example that Alice only decided to use wheat as a store of value upon realizing its usefulness as a medium of exchange. This, of course, is only logical. Indeed, the reason most individuals continue to use fiat as a store of value and not gold despite the latter's better performance in this regard, is to ensure their funds are readily accessible in case they have to suddenly be exchanged for goods or services. As Menger explains in Principles of Economics, quote, The portion of his wealth that an economizing individual intends to use for purchasing consumption goods attains that form in which he may at any time satisfy his needs in the most certain and most rapid manner, if it is first exchanged for money." End quote. He continues more direct, quote, "It appears to me to be just as certain that the functions of being a quote, "measure of value" and a quote, "store of value" must not be attributed to money as such, since these functions are of a merely accidental nature and are not an essential part of the concept of money." End quote. Chapter 1 of Mises's later work, The Theory of Money and Credit devoted an entire section to the secondary functions of money, which included value storage. In fact, Mises' tone towards those who mistook the secondary functions of money for its primary purpose was borderline mockery, and is frankly as appropriate today as it was when it was written in 1912. Quote, After Menger's review of the question, further discussion of the connection between the secondary functions of money and its basic function should be unnecessary. Nevertheless, certain tendencies in recent literature on money make it appear advisable to examine briefly these secondary functions. Some of them are coordinated with the basic function by many writers and to show once more that all of them can be deduced from the function of money as common medium of exchange." End quote. So, if Bitcoin's primary utility cannot logically be value storage, then what is its use value? Bitcoin's initial utility was the enabling of peer-to-peer transactions without the need for third-party intermediaries. In other words, to bank the unbanked. Prior to the advent of Bitcoin, if my friend and TNL contributor Alex Utopium, Norway, and I, New York City, wished to conduct a transaction, we'd need a third party, such as Visa, or a bank to verify that one of us had sent the funds and also that the other had received them. Naturally, this systematic centralization became a magnet for political parasites to infiltrate the financial sovereignty of individuals. Satoshi's white paper changed this forever. Ever since and forevermore, any two people anywhere in the world can transact without statists prying into their affairs. For a real-world example, Look no further than the agorist hero Ross Ulbricht. Inspired by the late J. Neal Shulman's Alongside Knight, Ross created the first truly free and uncensored market humanity has ever known. Without a peer-to-peer currency, the Silk Road would have never been possible. But with it, buyers and sellers were able to transact without worrying about third-party censorship. This is the utility of Bitcoin. Final thoughts. In conclusion, based on the Austrian criteria for saleability, Bitcoin has two weaknesses. First, its marketability through space is limited by transaction fees. Also, the pseudonymous nature of Bitcoin leaves the chain vulnerable to state interference and limits its temporal saleability relative to anonymous chains. Secondly, transporting Bitcoin currently requires more resources than a host of other digital commodities, making it less portable and thus less sound. Finally, the maximalist claim that Bitcoin satisfies the utility requirement of the regression theorem as a means of value storage suffers from circularity. Value storage is a secondary function of money dependent on its ability to serve its primary function as exchange media. Do you agree or disagree? Share your thoughts in the comments below. Well, I disagree, and we're going to talk about it All in just a minute. Let's hit our sponsor, and we will come back. So, I actually really appreciated this article because um, it was... I'm an Austrian economics nerd myself, uh, as anybody who's listened to this show knows. And uh, I like a decent... I prefer the economic argument, even though I think the... uh, um The technical side of it, um, it's, it's, see that's funny. it's not really the technical side of it. It's more the game theory side of it that I think is the critical factor. Um, and I do think this argument is flawed from a couple of respects. One, in the fact that it cherry picks um, uh, portability as the single most important issue when that it really is not stressed by manger. Uh, or Mises. Um, it's really kind of an afterthought, in like I did not get that impression at all when reading it. And I did try to go back over a lot of um, uh, those sections or whatever because I haven't read it in a while. Uh, but um, that was not the impression at all that I got of their importance of the aspect of money. And I think it entirely ignores one of the prerequisites at play with the examples given and all of the examples, really, that Manger gives um, for the history of money. Um, uh, So the one I'm actually going to focus on is Manger here, uh, just because the Mises quote um, towards the end is basically a reiteration of Manger's argument. Now, the the biggest flaw, outside of what I think is cherry-picking portability and Uh, at the same time, misunderstanding what portability is, because Bitcoin is infinitely portable. Um, Bitcoin is not... It's the assumption that a Bitcoin transaction is the only way to move, exchange, transport Bitcoin, which is totally missing the point. Um, And maybe that's coming from a, a very narrow idea of how this protocol is going to work in the future and what the underlying, the base... Utility of that protocol is because it is not peer-to-peer transactions, and it's not a store of value. Both of those, I think, are derivatives of its actual utility, and therein lies another issue. At the the base of this sort of uh, argument is that we're entirely focused on uh, taking a meme and trying to disprove the meme, which the meme does not have to match up to reality. Like the store of value idea can be entirely incorrect. That doesn't mean that Bitcoin fails. Uh, It could just as easily be that just as it's been pretty much since the beginning, that we've all misunderstood Bitcoin. We don't understand. We're just trying to explain why this thing is succeeding so well. And again, I think um, peer-to-peer transactions, the fact that it's uh, uh, censorship resistant, the uh, fact that it's a store of value, all of these are derivatives. They're consequences of what Bitcoin actually does. And what's funny is I actually think one of the best examples of it is the one he, ex- he uses to explain why it's only peer-to-peer transactions is Ross Ulbricht's um, uh, situation and uh, experiment in uh, darknet markets. But we, w- we will come back to that. So let me hit the uh, conclusion of this piece real quick just to sum up the argument again. And, uh, and then I'll go through the earlier points and we'll just kind of hit this uh, piece by piece. But uh, right now the conclusion w- was uh, Bitcoin has two weaknesses. First, its marketability through space is limited by transaction fees, um, uh, also, which is not true. Um, also, the pseudonymous nature of Bitcoin leaves the chain vulnerable to state interference and limits its temporal salability relative to anonymous chains. Now, I do believe that su- the pseudonymous nature of Bitcoin leaves it vulnerable to state interference, which is. Again, the argument for small blocks, the argument for being able to achieve consensus in the face of a state actor, and it is why so much of the development focus right now is on privacy. That's why Lightning is such, an, uh, such a huge endeavor and so important to the progress of uh, the protocol, and it's why sidechains like Liquid have um, uh, confidentiality built into every single transaction. So I don't believe the pseudonymous pseudonymous nature of the underlying protocol. The only reason it is required at this point is because we have no way for provable assurances of the accounting without being able to see the entire history and amount being transacted. Everything else there is a trade-off and it is the trade-off of the single greatest utility that the base layer of this protocol uh, achieves, which again, we will get back to in just a moment. Um, so I agree that anonymity is critically important. And, uh, I think, um, that's why, that's why I think the focus on anonymity is, is, um, is being pushed so hard right now on Bitcoin. Uh, but then second, secondly, uh, transporting Bitcoin currently requires more resources than a host of other digital commodities, making it less portable and thus less sound. And finally, the maximalist claim that Bitcoin satisfies the utility requirement of the regression theorem as a means of value storage suffers from circularity. Value storage is a secondary function of money dependent on its ability to serve its primary function as exchange media. This is the one that uh, really suffers um, here because it totally takes for granted that the Assumption of the the regression theorem, I think the regression theorem is out the window here um, because of digital assets in and of themselves. And unfortunately, Manger and Mises never had the opportunity to experience a money being invented. And I'll actually get to that in a second too because Manger has something, has a quote specifically about that uh, that I really, really love. So guess what doesn't fulfill the regression theorem? Any and all digital assets. End of story. And the idea that the value storage argument is circular and then the complete dismissal of the fact that the value exchange argument is equally circular It's the exact same argument. It's logically no different. So if Bcash's uh, 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 utility is value transfer and Bitcoin's utility is value storage, which I think neither are the case, then they are equally circular because the whole reason it's circular is because it can't have a utility of something that um uh, that uh, it can't have a utility for a for the use of value in something that doesn't yet have value. Uh, I hope I explained that right. Um, but that's 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 Sally's position. So I, I'm not. This is not me contradicting Sally here. This is me saying, okay, yeah, the the argument is circular. Uh, I think the idea of the regression theorem that that. Uh, value cannot be circular is actually a rather Keynesian idea because it's it's saying that in order to have any value, something must have immediate consumption value, which is which I think is disproven and contradicted all over the place. How could VCS uh, invest in an idea that doesn't have immediate consumptive value? How could one invest a year of their life into a project that nobody is? Um, uh, nobody else is using has no product how could uh, someone become the first user of a social network that is completely useless and has zero utility until all of his other friends joins that social network it's basically the idea that we cannot see potential value that we cannot extrapolate anywhere into the future and that there is no factor of time here in the value of things And uh, that, which is the one thing that separates, supposedly separates humanity from the rest of the animal kingdom, was that we can look into the future. We can see potential value. We can extrapolate out that if I do this and uh, uh, change this and build this in this certain way, that holy crap, uh, uh, something else can happen or I could have some additional utility. Or if somebody else, if all of my friends adopted this social network, look at the incredible utility that this would have. I should go ahead and do this now, in uh, anticipation of a future where other people do as well. So I think I really think the regression theorem is actually based in a uh, false Keynesian mindset, and I think the very creation of digital assets, every single one of them, if they have, if we are claiming there is any value at all, we have to stop and look at the regression theorem and ask: Is this valid still? Um. But uh, uh, aside from that is none of these are money yet. None of them are money and they won't be money until after something has happened. Something that is critically important to every single example. Well, the couple of examples that Sal gives and then also every example that Menger and Mises give that uh, at least that I know of and um, that uh, I I went back through the principles of economics section um, and actually just kind of, uh, made a short list and highlighted a couple of things um, that I wanted to point out. and <clears throat> But all of those other examples, wheat, uh, cattle, salt, like all of these have something as a prerequisite to ever being able to be used as a medium of exchange. So uh, let's go ahead and start hitting this point by point. I guess we'll start with portability since that really is the foundation of this uh, position. And I think uh, it really uh, disproves or um, it kind of hits at the foundation of the rest of the argument entirely. And then we'll move into the prerequisite for a medium of exchange using the examples. um, We'll hit the... Uh, value to weight ratio and why that is not what makes one money superior to another and we actually see this in multiple historical examples and we have comparisons today as to why that's not true and um, why stock to flow is actually a more important element um, in that in building the prerequisites to becoming a medium of exchange and we also saw that in competition between monies throughout history. So, uh, then we will conclude with the nature of a digital asset in and of itself, like what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin and uh, what the actual utility is that makes all of its other utilities possible. Um, that It serves as a um, prerequisite, not only in the sense of becoming one day a medium of exchange, uh, which, all the, which, which it shares with all other previous monies, but um, what is it in its digital nature that actually makes it an asset versus just digital points. So he lays out the four main areas at the beginning, uh, and we'll kind of use that as our guide. But I'm actually going to start with number four since he decided not to elaborate on it and uh, because I think it is the weakest, most unbecoming of the arguments. So uh, it says, Bitcoin maximalism lays waste to the Hayekian notion of competition as a discovery procedure. And he says, and we covered this in episode 50, uh, so it's not elaborated on great detail here. And I think this is a totally emotional, um, ad hominem argument that is not based in reality at all. It's just extremely easy to, uh, it's kind of like identity politics. It's just like a Bitcoin maximalist is this sort of a person and let me fill in all of the terrible evil things that they think so that I can dismiss the rest of their argument. If you take out Bitcoin maximalism, the term, and just look at what the logic of that uh, argument is, and you immediately just have that uh, the fact that someone else holds a very strong opinion against mine is somehow a monopolistic control of the market or something. This is something that I see that the worst straw man that is constantly beaten to death by everybody who is anti-Bitcoin is that Bitcoin maximalism is anti-market. And that is absolutely not even close to the truth. It's no less ridiculous than saying a diehard Cowboys fan is anti-competitive sports. They love sports. They just think that everybody else is an idiot for betting on anyone other than the Cowboys. And they will tell it. They will believe it with absolute 100% undenying fervor and they will call everybody idiots and they will call everyone selling you to bet on a crappier team a scammer and they will have absolutely no qualms about it but they aren't anti-football there are no Bitcoiners there are no Bitcoin maximalists who think that we should put in a law that says all, uh, all cryptocurrencies are illegal except for Bitcoin and if there are I will be the first to admit that those people are fucking retarded What Bitcoin maximalists actually do, they just make the point over and over again that the copies, the endless copies of Bitcoin make no sense and you're just going to lose money, which is perfectly reasonable. In fact, using a Mises quote, uh, the Bitcoin maximalist perspective is beautifully detailed uh, in this article. Quote, as Mises explained, the greater the marketability of the goods first acquired in indirect exchange, the greater would be the prospect of being able to reach the ultimate objective without further maneuvering. Thus, there would be an inevitable tendency for the less marketable of the series of goods used as media of exchange to be one by one rejected until at last only a single commodity remained, which was universally employed as a medium of exchange, in a word, money. End quote. That is the Bitcoin maximalist argument. Bitcoin is going to be the money because it is the one that most soundly provides the assurances of a monetary good and one by one all others will be rejected and all utility tokens all smart contract platforms all shitcoins everything else must compete with Bitcoin as money and the bitcoin maximalist argument is simply that they will all fail because of the competition between money will lead to one That is it. It is not anti-competitive. It is not anti-free choice. It's declarative of what the end result of that competition and free choice will be. Full stop. That is it. It doesn't involve anything else. It doesn't involve uh, anybody's emotions. It doesn't involve attacking anybody. Regardless of whether anybody who claims to be a Bitcoin maximalist calls somebody else a scammer, that is the Bitcoin maximalist argument. That money tends toward one, and you'd be stupid for using a less marketable one and a less sound one. But anyway, that's as far as we need to go there. Um, that's just such a, just a silly argument that's just like a bunch of anti-Bitcoiners patting themselves on the back. It's like, well, they're all authoritarians. And again, even though Sal brought it up, um, I am glad that he didn't focus on it because I would not have read this article otherwise. All right, so let's move on. Uh, we, we've just knocked out number four um, across the board. It is neither true. Um, it's not an economic argument. It's got nothing to do with whether or not Bitcoin will become money. And I have never, ever heard or read anywhere where Mises, Rothbard, or Manger, or whoever, uh, ever said that if the, uh, uh, the people who demand cattle for uh, their monetary good uh, instead of sheep, if they are less polite than the people who accept sheep, or if the people who accept sheep are more open to accepting many other commodities, that somehow that means uh, cattle will never become the monetary good. Okay, so points one and two at the beginning of this, um, uh, I think really just, th- they're the same argument. They they both fall under the portability uh, argument. And um, I don't think that's unfair. I'm not trying to like dodge anything. I'll refresh just to explain why I think that is. But uh, one, based on the criteria for saleability as laid out by the Austrian school, Bitcoin is not the most marketable digital commodity, which he says that is because of portability. And then two, a lack of portability relative to other currencies implies Bitcoin isn't as sound of a commodity, which he's saying that marketability and soundness are a uh, result of portability. So let's first hit marketability before. Before I do anything else, marketability is just the ability of a commodity to be sold. It is essentially liquidity. And so if you go to, like if we go back to the argument that Bitcoin is less marketable, um, that on its, face, on its face is not true. Bitcoin is obviously the most marketable of all digital commodities. Um, and uh, its portability is neither in its way right now, nor will be in its way in the longer term, because It is the only digital commodity that has the highest assurances in uh, maintaining itself as an independent digital asset into the future. And um, I'll explain that that is absolutely prerequisite to anything else, any other value that Bitcoin uh, could have, whether it be peer to peer transactions, storing value, um, smart contracts, anything and everything must come after the ability to know that it is a reliable, safe, uh, uncontestable digital asset. So again, let's use let's actually use his example here. That, that he says wheat. Um, uh, Bob politely informs you know Alice that we don't need a telescope anymore. Now I need a pair of shoes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then Alice notices that she's uh, not the only person hoping to trade for wheat. She notices a whole lot more economic activity in wheat. In wheat, therefore. It is a much more saleable or marketable commodity. That wheat is in higher demand. It is not in demand because it can be used for a medium of exchange. It is in demand because it is wheat. Because it's, it's al- the alternative utility. This is why I think the regression theorem was so popular and was such an important foundation in our, uh, our foundations for understanding money. And and how it originates is because it always originated from some other uh, marketable good, a a good that obtained the highest liquidity in the market for some other reason. That is why they all had an alternative means. That's why that's why you use cattle. It wasn't that oh, cattle's a great medium of exchange. Therefore, we should use it for a medium of exchange because I can easily walk a cattle to the other side of town and exchange it with you. That had nothing to do with it. It was because cattle was the most liquid market. It is the most marketable good. That is the prerequisite. It must have a huge, robust market for some other reason in order to then be used as a medium of exchange. This is why none of these currencies are mediums of exchange and they cannot be mediums of exchange before being the other. Nobody's going to use a volatile currency and they should not be using a volatile currency For a medium of exchange, it doesn't make any sense. It won't be money for years, decades. It will take an incredibly long time for the market to be liquid enough, um, for uh, Bitcoin to be recognizable enough to ever be used as a medium of exchange. We've got 20 years before that happens. It is not money yet. Money is a maturation process. We're looking at the monetization of a good. We have to get a highly liquid global market. This has to be a global market for it to be global money. We can't skip that step. And during that step, it is a speculative asset. One that has the highest assurances to be a monetary base. That is what Bitcoin is. And that is what Bitcoin does better than everything, than all of its competitors. And this is the one argument that Mises and Menger both stress is that it is about higher marketability of the commodity because you only take in exchange the commodities or or the, the goods that rather than having use value to themselves, but goods which also have a greater marketability so that you can obtain later the consumptive goods that you're actually looking for. I uh, grabbed a quote from Principles of Economics. Um, The quote, The fact that slaves and chunks of salt became money in the interior of Africa, that cakes of wax on the upper Amazon, uh, cod in Iceland and Newfoundland, uh, tobacco in Maryland and Virginia, sugar in the British West Indies, and ivory in the vicinity of the Portuguese colonies took on the functions of money is explained by the fact that these goods were, and in some cases still are, the chief articles exported from these places. Thus, they acquire, just as did furs among hunting tribes, a preeminent marketability. It is, the marketability is their key argument. And the way Bitcoin achieves its marketability is through a speculative asset in its degree of assurances, in the fact that we can know and over time know stronger and stronger the degree that that digital asset is perfectly scarce. And the degree to that digital asset is perfectly owned simply and only by its owner and cannot be contested by anyone else. Slaves weren't money because they were easier to move. Uh, uh, Cod in Newfoundland and Iceland wasn't money because it was uh, more sound than uh, the alternatives. They were money because they had a giant built-in market liquidity and recognizability that they achieved in some other way. But that market recognition could only happen locally because of the specific characteristics of those local markets. As money became a global and international phenomenon, a, a, uh, a, a cross societal and cross environmental good, that is when it led to metals as um, monies. And uh, they actually talk about, I can't remember whether it's Mises or Manger, um, but they talk about a concept of. Um, uh, Why uh, the the actual progress of civilization made all of these alternatives fall away as money? Because as we moved into cities, as our environment changed, uh, those other ones could no longer maintain their monetary characteristics and they no longer had that liquid market. In, um, in a place where you can't, you can't you know, move cattle down the street in the middle of your city and uh, drop it off at somebody else's apartment. You know, like, it doesn't work anymore. You need a new form of money and a new technology for money in order to meet the demands of a new environment and uh, technological inva- advancement. And this is highly uh, relevant to the conversation of Bitcoin and how you can actually achieve a digital asset um, in the uh, in the digital space um, which is not an easy task and if it's not an asset well then it doesn't matter what else it can do it can't hold value so again we'll get to that in just a second that's going to be kind of the summation of the whole position because I think all of this other stuff that we're hitting uh, kind of gets leads us to that point so to summarize before we move on to portability is that marketability means it is a highly recognized and highly liquid market. And there, there, we will never have price stability. We will never use any, any of these digital assets as mediums of exchange. None of it will work that way and it won't be a pricing mechanism until it is a highly liquid, highly accessible global market for the good. That has to come first just like every other example we have of money using the regression theorem. It developed a market, a recognition, and a high liquidity within the communities or the societies that use them as money prior to them being used as a medium of exchange every single time. And that is what is meant by marketability, not transaction fees. And that is also why all of those goods do anything at storing value is because they already have a robust, highly liquid market. That is why they transmit value from point A to point B and from time A to time B. Eventually being used as a medium of exchange only reinforces the ability for the good to do those, to, to um, accomplish those tasks. All right, so let's move on to portability. Um, now, the... the the base argument here is, I mean, he just kind of says, uh, I mean, maybe lightning, but we don't know. Um, but this is information. That's all Bitcoin is, is information. It is perfectly portable. Like like portability also refers to the ability to move it from location A to location B. And in that, there is zero portability cost outside of memorizing 24 words or however it is that you get it from point A to B, point B, whether you... Email it to yourself, uh, encrypted, or you put it on a USB, or again, you memorize it, or you write it down on a piece of paper, it doesn't matter. Moving that, or accessing, um, it's in cyberspace. It is everywhere all at once. That makes it brilliantly portable. But when we're talking about exchange, when we're talking about exchanging it with somebody else, we're talking about putting it under the control of, Of someone else's keys that the signature authority moves from person a to person B and that can be done literally an infinite number of ways but what is the underlying prerequisite for it to be meaningful at all that the current key holder knows 100% or as with the highest assurances mathematically possible that they are the owner of the coin. Anything that sacrifices or degrades that assurance is meaningless regardless of how much it costs. That's one of the key principles here is you can't, to stop and think of it like an app, you have to look at what Bitcoin is. It is just an Excel spreadsheet. It's just a digital ledger. Why is it actually a scarce asset? Like he talks about, like sound money is indeed scarce, uh, but it's also homogeneous, divisible, durable, and crucially portable. But if it's it can be portable and not have any other characteristics, and it's a terrible, terrible money and a digital asset without those other characteristics, without assurances of those characteristics, means nothing at all. It's nothing. It's just digital information. I might as well just type it into a text edit, uh, to a text file on my computer, and just. Give myself a billion Bitcoin. If I don't have the assurances that it is a scarce asset, then I have nothing at all. I just have something typed into a screen on my computer. I can edit the blockchain easily. Why is it a digital asset? Because I can verify it against a global standard of rules for what a Bitcoin is without verification. Bitcoin isn't anything at all. I cannot stress this enough. I can I can go into my computer, I can write a new balance underneath my address with 10,000 bitcoins. I can send it out on port 8333 to every node that I'm connected to. What is the thing that makes others not accept that? What is the one thing that prevents this from being a concern, despite every computer participating on the network, can easily do the exact same thing. Verification. That is it. And it requires verification of the accounting. I can also produce a valid hash with my 10,000 Bitcoin balance. But if I am not, there is currently no other means of verification to the actual integrity and uh, uh, genuineness of a Bitcoin other than uh, verifying the accounting of the entire network that every single entry on that ledger fulfills the validation rules from the genesis block. Everything else I do is a shortcut. It is coinage. It is trusting the bank. It is trusting the miner. It is trusting the hash. It is not Bitcoin. It is someone else telling me what Bitcoin is, period. And the degree to that distribution, the number of people who are validating and verifying Bitcoin against every SQL, Excel database, anywhere else in the world, just random points which are infinite on the internet, everyone, the the degree that that is being verified and the distribution of jurisdictions that that is being verified in and the number of people verifying it all the way back to the beginning is its degree of assurance. It is not easy to measure, it is not easy to weigh one against the other, but it is critical. And a second critical factor in what makes Bitcoin a Bitcoin versus just points on a screen is in the security assumptions that go into the verification rules. This is why hard forks are so stupid. They should only ever be taken when the assurances of those cryptographic tools are being risked in some way. ECDSA doesn't get better because we tweak the algorithm every six months. ECDSA becomes completely useless as a security measure if we change the algorithm every six months. Nobody thinks we should just be constantly adding features or new little tweaks to a uh, cryptographic algorithm or a hashing algorithm or anything over time because it is only secure because it survives it survives the test of time as soon as you hard fork as soon as you go out you step outside of the consensus rules you have an entirely unique untested security profile which means you might as well be running the risk of turning your bitcoin into points on a screen and maybe maybe it doesn't But every single change, no matter how small, runs that risk if you are moving outside of the current consensus. And what could be a better example other than Segwit2x? What could be a better example? They said over and over and over again for years that we're just changing like two lines of code. How could it be dangerous? And what happened? The network failed. Those two lines of code turned out to be too much for those developers. It broke the consensus rules and broke the network. They never mined a single block despite trying. And if you aren't verifying back to the Genesis block, we have numerous great examples of not verifying the accounting. Bitcoin private, great example. They mined 2 million coins in secret uh, in the the anonymity set or whatever that took uh, I, don't, I don't remember exactly how long it took, but it was like a year. Like the project was live and everybody gave it value. And I think it's still out there, which is ridiculous. Um, but uh, CoinMetrics finally did the math and actually ran a full node and went back and checked. And lo and behold, there's 23 million Bitcoin private, not 21. What do you know? No assurances. Points on a screen unless it is verified. That is why rule number one in Bitcoin and all cryptocurrency should be don't trust, verify. Because without verification, it isn't anything. And what's funny is this is exactly the story of why gold failed. Um, uh, first, he, he goes into a couple examples that um, uh, the, he talks about the value to weight ratio, uh, that gold is more portable than iron. Because you know if you want to purchase a car, you have to have a lot of iron. Uh, you only need a little bit of gold. Um, well, that is not what makes one uh, one money work better than another. Um, if that was the case, well, then platinum uh, has had a higher price per ounce than gold uh, on numerous occasions for and for much of its uh, history. Uh, rhodium uh, is uh, more valuable per ounce than gold. Uh, and yet its uh, stock to flow, um, their durability, actually rhodium is more durable than well, I don't know. If, I'm not sure if it's more durable than gold, but they actually put rhodium on the outside of uh, like silver rings uh, to keep it from tarnishing, um, like a like a plate of rhodium. It's even put on white gold to make it shinier. Uh, there are multiple examples of the fact that the value to weight ratio is not critically important, um, and uh, to, uh, not to mention that Bitcoin is infinitely has an infinite value to weight ratio as long as it has uh, secure assurances as to the owner of the coins. Um, well, you can transmit a trillion dollars just as easily as you can transmit $10. The transaction cost is totally dependent on the size of the transaction and also how, how, what to what degree of assurances you want in your transaction. Do you need $50 million worth of security in a $5 transaction? No, that is the argument. What you are getting every time you make a Bitcoin transaction at the end of the day is $50 million worth of security. You don't need that in a $5 transaction. You need that in a $50 million transaction. It's like using a forklift to carry a bag of groceries. And it's funny because Manger, in in this following the section where uh, uh, Sal quotes about uh, Manger's uh, discussions of uh, Bitcoin, or not Bitcoin, of uh, metals not necessarily serving the purposes of preservation of values, which actually, the way Menger says it is actually values plural, and it's in quotations, and he's referring to price values. Um, that it's not necessarily important for, and it's just following a section where he's talking about money as a pricing mechanism. That there have been many monies where the measure of price was not necessary for it to be uh, a medium of exchange or a highly marketable good. It did not also have to uh, be a pricing mechanism. Uh, there's a, there's another highlight that I did quote. There are other commodities that have attained money character, weapons, plate, bronze rings, etc., but which never were used as measures of price. The function of serving as a measure of price is not, therefore, contained in the concept of money. Um, it is, it's Just because they were highly marketable and highly liquid goods uh, does not mean that you're going to price them in those goods. But that's where he goes into talking about coinage. Quote, the chief defects involved in the use of the precious metals for monetary purposes are 1. The difficulty of determining their genuineness and degree of fineness, and 2. The necessity of dividing the hard material into pieces appropriate to each particular transaction. These difficulties cannot be removed easily without loss of time and other economic sacrifices. Menger rightfully points out that the failure of gold. Was an and metallic money, uh, was essentially in the inability to verify it, and that's the history of gold. It turned into paper money, which worked great because that paper money, uh, for a short period of time, maintained the other all the other important characteristics of gold until. We lost the ability to audit. We lost the ability to keep in check and refuse money that wasn't backed by gold. that wasn't backed by the verifiable characteristics of a sound monetary good. That is how gold failed. It lost its stock-to-flow ratio in paper money. And we saw the same thing when monies competed. Uh, in all the conditions where money competes. When gold was introduced uh, to societies with glass beads and uh, those glass beads lost their um, uh, their supply, their scarce supply, well, then they failed as money. Uh, when um, rye stones lost their scarce supply, they failed as money. Uh, the supply is, the, the restriction and scarcity and stock to flow ratio is absolutely a prerequisite to it properly holding value so that it become a medium, can become a medium of exchange, and which we have already established by the example of everything that fulfills the regression theorem, it was already storing money. I mean, excuse me, it was already storing value. Wheat stored value because you could use it to eat. Uh, salt stored value because you could use it to store food. Gold stored value because you could, it was pretty, recognizable, and people used it for jewelry. Um, like, like, all of these things were already... Highly liquid, highly valuable markets. The idea that we don't need that first is to reject everything we know about the history of money. All that aside, there's about a million different ways we can uh, transport or exchange Bitcoin. Again, it's information. Uh, There are physical Bitcoin. There are side chains. There's the Lightning Network. I use the Lightning Network every other day now. I have, it has already been a 10, maybe even a 20x scaling improvement for my use of Bitcoin. And I have made so many transactions of a tenth of a cent, a hundredth of a cent. Um, what's, a, what's a one Satoshi? I don't know. I've probably made like five or six one Satoshi payments just for no reason at all. Um, and uh, but like that is, that is unbelievable portability. And I have the degree of assurance of, the closing of that lightning channel. That's an incredibly high assurance for 100 Satoshi transactions. That's overkill in and of itself. Um, Lightning is working great and it's getting tons of development. It is not ready yet. It is not ready for a medium of exchange. Neither is Bitcoin. Neither is Bitcoin cash. None of these things are going to be a medium of exchange yet, despite the fact that some crazy, probably stupid people like me try to use it like that just because I like to tinker and I love this technology, but we've also got state chains, state chains where we, um, lock them up in a contract where we can, I can exchange the same private key to somebody else. It's essentially physical bitcoins on, uh, on the actual blockchain. I'm actually moving an entire address worth of coins to the ownership of somebody else. And mine is revoked with a sequence of keys. Um, and uh, sidechains can scale infinitely. And again, they, they all settle back to a chain that offers millions and millions of dollars worth of assurances in a matter of hours. The network is programmable. The money is programmable. There is no limit to its portability in regards to exchange outside of, their, outside of limits of uh, bandwidth capacity on the internet. Like, it is just the degree of imagination and ingenuity that the market has in making it more portable. But it has everything to do with the assurances that the base layer gives on whether or not you're actually using Bitcoin versus just trusting the points on somebody else's computer. If it gets hard to verify, if it becomes a six-month job to spin up a node, then you might as well use a bank because you're just assuming you won't have an adversary who has any mining power. And that's not the assumption of an adversarial network. That's not the assumption of a global reserve, verifiable digital asset that can stand up to a state. Any portability that we achieve that sacrifices the ability for Bitcoin to remain Bitcoin in the face of a powerful, well-funded adversary, one that makes it so we can't run it over tour. Any portability that we get that way is a portability I can already get by opening up an Excel spreadsheet on my computer. Bitcoin's utility is independence and verifiability. It is the highest assurance banking ledger in the history of the world. It has massive utility regardless of whether it costs $10 to get an entry on that ledger or 10 cents because that entry has no limit outside of its security assurances, to how much value it can hold. If we can't trust the chain, if we can't trust the rules, if there are too many features with too great an attack surface, if it has hard forked recently and now has no Lindy effect and we have to test all of these uh, assumptions all over again, well then, yeah, it can't hold a trillion dollars worth of value because it hasn't held $100 billion. It hasn't held $500 billion. Why would we trust it with a trillion? What we had was a maturing young adult who we would believe would continue to survive further into the future and eventually grow to become a man who can protect us or perform some task, chop down a tree, whatever the hell it is. We have an eight-year-old boy or a 10-year-old boy, and by hard forking, you've just immediately taken him back to an infant so that we can give him blue eyes instead of brown. It needs to prove itself to keeping $100 secure and then $1,000 secure and then $100,000 secure, et cetera, et cetera for it, for extended periods of time, for it to justify continuing to gain value, for it to justify and prove its ability to keep the ledger secure within the rules, that the rules will never be contested And that the owner of an entry on the Bitcoin ledger is the owner, no matter what. Hands down, unequivocally, it is an independent asset. It is an independent financial network that nobody in the world can contest. We can make that as portable as we want. We can do a million different things with it. We can make layers, but to sacrifice the underlying security is to make it meaningless. And that's the test that Ross Ulbricht gave it, is can it stand up in the face of blatantly violating a powerful government? That was the test that the Silk Road gave to Bitcoin. That is the test that proved its utility, not in just peer-to-peer transactions, but in independent, uncontestable ownership of an entry on that ledger. It is a truly global asset with zero counterparty risk, where the only factor that goes into proving whether you own a balance in an address is that you have verified it against the history of Bitcoin and against the rules that govern it. That is it. You don't have to ask a certain person. You don't have to trust a certain bank. You don't have to make sure that some specific judge or government or president or whoever it is agrees with you, it is entirely within the system that you make that verification. That is its utility. Not only is Lightning Network working fine, but it doesn't have to work in order for this to be a multi-trillion dollar asset. Okay, I'm not even 100% sure where I am anymore. I went off onto a rant there. Um, uh, so... You know, there is actually, before we close this out, I guess I'll sum up my position um, against uh, what uh, the major points that Sal made in this article. And, um, uh, but I did want to hit a quote that I just thought really portrayed the uniqueness of our current situation. I talked about that example about how cities basically led to the rise of metallic money because of. Uh, the changing environment required a, a new type of money. Um, well, that's what we have now. W- with cyberspace, we have a new type of money coming into being and we have an entirely new market of competition and a new completely, set of character- completely unique set of characteristics that we cannot take for granted. And we must understand what about the protocol enforces those characteristics because these are characteristics that are not inherent to digital things. Therefore, for it to do anything else with which those characteristics rely on, like be a medium of exchange, we cannot in any way sacrifice what gives it those characteristics to begin with. But the quote that I uh, wanted to hit um, was, this one was from Principles of Economics, and it's, uh, that's Manger's piece. And it says, quote, Money is not the product of an agreement on the part of economizing men, nor the product of legislative acts. No one invented it. As economizing individuals in social situations became increasingly aware of their economic interest, they everywhere attained the simple knowledge that surrendering less saleable commodities for others of greater salability brings them substantially closer to the attainment of their specific economic purposes. Sacrificing a less recognizable and less marketable good for a more recognizable, more marketable good, whose genuineness can be easily verified, mind you, is what eventually leads to something becoming a monetary good. But this time it has actually been invented to have the characteristics of money. So it's pretty fascinating that we kind of get this experiment fresh, um, that we actually do get to see what happens when somebody tries to invent money to be money. And I would have loved to see what Menger and Mises thought of the current uh, market of Bitcoin and the the. I I would God I would pay a lot of money to see them do a write up of Bitcoin and just the nature of cryptocurrency, um, it'd just be absolutely fascinating. So, um, with that, uh, let's see, uh, let's go through, let's go to the points. Let's see, let me go back to the beginning with his like four points. Um, okay. Well, first on circularity. So saying something has value because it can transact value is the exact same logic as saying it has value because it can store value or because it can decorate value or grow value, whatever you want to do with the value. If the argument is that that circularity cannot produce a successful cryptocurrency, well, then there is no digital asset that does not have that problem at its creation. And it requires that people see potential value in it before it has any utility. So the circularity argument either applies to every current, every digital currency or it's irrelevant. On marketability, that is just recognition and liquidity. Bitcoin absolutely by far has the lead. Um, on uh, portability, there is no limit to the number of ways we can exchange Bitcoin. And as an unimportant side note, Lightning has been working great for me and I love it. And it has been an incredible scaling a tool, at least in my personal experience. On the, let's see, the weight to value weight ratio thing, uh, Bitcoin's is practically infinite um, because it is uh, the amount of value that Bitcoin can carry is based solely on how secure its verification and cryptographic assumptions are. On, uh, let's see, the utility of Bitcoin, uh, it's a verifiable digital ledger that grants the highest possible assurances to its owner in comparison to any alternative because it can do so in the face of uh, a political opposition, something that nothing else, the ownership of almost nothing else can actually grant. So that is a utility that in the fa- is highly, highly valuable, particularly in the face of the increasing political uncertainty all across the globe right now. On transaction costs, if all it took was to make a new chain that was cheaper, and then it would immediately be more saleable, um, which is a misunderstanding of saleability. But let's say let's take it at that assumption. Well, then me making a new cryptocurrency today, in which nobody used it, would immediately outcompete Bitcoin Cash, would outcompete Bitcoin SV, would outcompete Cardano. All you would have to do is make a new com- new currency, new cryptocurrency, and it would just beat out all of the others. And on every single point that we've gone into so far in this entire thing. None of it means anything if we are not verifying that the points of the system, the, the Bitcoin within that system, are 100% genuine against the rules of the system, that those rules are absolute, and that they are the only arbiter, no social, political, anything else, that the rules are the arbiter that determines ownership, because that is the utility of Bitcoin, and without that, it is just a spreadsheet. I guess. So I think I hit everything, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I didn't. But uh. uh anyway, I, I actually enjoyed this article. Um, I, I don't mean to get like get really intense. Um, I, I follow Sal on Twitter. Uh, he's an agorist, you know, like he's a, a fellow anarcho-capitalist, if you will. Um, and he's got some of the best memes. So I, I definitely encourage you to uh. Make up your own mind. Read Menger and Mises. See what you think about their, their work. Um, uh, absolutely the theory of money and credit, principles of economics, the origins of money, all that stuff. There's so many great works to dive into, and they're really great reads. Menger is a little bit, well, I take that back. Both of their language is a little bit difficult to follow sometimes, um, but highly, highly recommended. Um, and follow Sal on Twitter. Um and you know, let me know if you think I was wrong about any of these um pieces. These are my thoughts on it. And, you know, if we can't if we can't defend our ideas against a challenger, if we if we can't work out the contradictions in our own views, then we' never'll we'll never know the truth. So, um, I really love to read contrarian views on occasion, particularly when I'm kind of sick of hearing. Uh, my own ideas thrown back at me over and over and over again. Um, So I wanted to share it with the rest of the crew and see what y'all thought. Um, So thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to to follow Sal for a lot of really great content all outside, you know, forgiving him his love of a shit coin. (laughs) Uh, So I I hope he uh, doesn't hate me for this. Uh, I don't mean any ill will toward him. And I, you know, I enjoyed his article. So um, thank you guys so much for listening. I will um, put all the links, as usual, in the show notes. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to The Crypto Economy. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And I, uh, I'm i sorry for not having an episode out for the last couple of days. I've been kind of distracted and busy with other things. Um, And I'm hoping, I'm just kind of waiting for the final word, Um, to get the audiobook of the little Bitcoin book out. so. You guys should definitely check that out. I'll have the link in an official announcement soon. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's right around the corner and I just finally got that done. I, my two days off-ish um, uh, let me get a lot of other recording done as well as finishing up the little Bitcoin book. So exciting times, uh, some stuff to come. Don't forget to subscribe. And until next time, take it easy, guys.